Thank you all for being here. And uh, if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16. That is where we're going to be dwelling uh, this morning. And as you're finding your way there in the program, there is a sermon outline and uh, there are blanks. So if, feel free to try to guess where I'm going on that. Maybe see if you can fill in the blanks and then grade yourself at the end. Uh, as I mentioned at 8.30, I don't have any Dairy Queen cards or Dunkin', uh, I was about to say Dunkin' Donuts, but they've done away with the donuts from now. I don't have any Dunkin' gift cards, uh, but uh, it's just a way for you to kind of stay in uh, sync where I am. I would like to just kind of start out with a question. Um, if you uh, became a Christian and, uh, and then you thought, all I need to do is just pray to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and then you do that, and then you go to a class that says, all right, now you've got to start reading your Bible. You've got to get up at four in the morning and start reading your Bible. Now you've got to start telling your friends about Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, we have to take you through an evangelism class. And so we're going to equip you on how to do that. And then uh, we're also thinking you need to uh, be in church every Sunday. I'm sorry if, if you uh, had your own time now and you spent the weekends at the lake or doing playing golf or whatever, but now you need to be at church. And when you're at church, not only do you have to show up at church, you have to wear certain clothes. Uh, you have to listen to certain music. Uh, when I was a uh, young 17-year-old coming to church the first time, uh, I had to have people kind of check and make sure I was wearing the right clothes and that I was listening to the right music as I pulled up. So there's a lot of things that you thought when it was first presented to you that all I needed to do was just confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And then you felt like, all right, there's been a switch here. Now I'm having to do all this other stuff. And then you find out in a class, now I have to start giving my hard-earned money uh, as a tangible way of demonstrating that God owns everything. So there's a lot of these things that are added to your, to your Christian life that are supposed to be a part of the life. So what is the motivation and the prompt to continue? If somebody were to say to you, now your Christian life has a, a series of tasks that you have to check off, uh, maybe in the beginning you have a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm for doing that, but over time uh, you begin to think, well, do I really need to do this? I've been seeing other people. They don't really do this. And so you begin to kind of negotiate and start wavering. Well, what we're going to look at this morning is a very important question because who you say Jesus is influences how you live. So if your relationship with God is just um, a belief and not a personal relationship with God, then it's going to be hard to persevere. It's going to be a challenge. But if you know you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then that is the motivation that keeps you on that path. And I think as we see and, and look at this passage today, you will see that who you say Jesus is does influence how you live. Now, we're looking in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, and uh, this is the very first gospel uh, in the New Testament. And uh, when I was 17, year old, 17 years old, 
when I prayed to receive Christ, I was looking in Scripture, and I actually started in Proverbs, because when you open the Bible, it kind of plops open right there in Proverbs. So that's where I started, but I noticed there were some red letters. And so I tried to find where the red letters start, and where did they start? Where Jesus is speaking. What book of the Bible? Matthew. Matthew. So Matthew was the first gospel book that I read. And then I read all the way up to John 15, 5, where Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's when those passages, that verse just kind of jumped off the page. And I sensed that God was speaking to me saying, you cannot live your life apart from him because you can't do anything apart from him. But I started in Matthew. The red letters are life. And I entered into a relationship. I didn't enter into a philosophy of life. I entered into a relationship with the one who gives life and who is life. So as we look here at Matthew, it is a probably the most widely read New Testament book because of its placement in Scripture. And Matthew is trying to educate people, uh, specifically Jewish people, on that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one from the line of Abraham. He fulfilled the Old Testament prophets' uh, promises concerning the Messiah, which was the life, teaching, the death, and the resurrection. And there are over 129 quotes and references to the Old Testament. So he is trying to convey to people that Jesus is the Messiah. As you read the gospel or the gospels, you realize that the gospels demand complete control of my life. Jesus said in Matthew 5, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. And so you begin to think, oh my gosh, how am I going to maintain that standard? And unless you're, you realize that your acceptance is in Christ and in the person of Christ, then it doesn't matter uh, your shortcomings. It's not a task. It's, it's, it's driven by your relationship with God. And we are to love like God does. So let's look in Matthew 16 and see what's going on here and set the context just a little bit. Because this series has focused on questions, and questions are very important. There are often many layers of uh, questions uh, that are being asked. For example, if you've ever been asked, did you wear that out in public? Uh, there's a, there's, it's more than uh, did you wear that. It's like I can't believe you just went out in public looking like that. Uh, so questions have different layers. And as you see here in Matthew 16, 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees approached Jesus and asked a test, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So that was a question, but it was a test. And so this series, we have looked at different questions, and I am grateful that uh, Alan asked me to, to teach this particular uh, uh, question because it is, to me, one of the most important questions uh, everyone here can answer and should answer. I know as teenagers, you're thinking, okay, the biggest question to me right now, do my friends like me? Maybe another question is, what am I going to do when I graduate from high school? Maybe another important question is, which college am I going to go to? 
Maybe another question is, what is my profession going to be? And these are all important questions. Who am I going to marry? But probably, and I think the most important question that you can answer, which will answer all of the other questions, is who do you say I am? Who is Jesus Christ in your life? What, is, what influence does he have in your life? And does he have that influence because he has demonstrated himself to you in a real, personal, and very practical way? So Jesus answers these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and says, hey, you can determine the weather based upon what the sky looks like in the morning and the evening, but yet I'm not giving you anything except the sign of Jonah, which was the death, burial, and resurrection uh, that he foreshadowed. And then in verse uh, 4, which is a very sad verse to me because this was his marked rejection of the religious leaders at this time, and his ministry was going to begin focusing on others. It says, then he walked away. Then he went away and left them and went away. So there's a new chapter coming here, and he leaves and he goes with the disciples, and he begins asking them questions. And and what I want you to understand here about these questions is that he is probing, he's asking probing questions to determine the spiritual receptivity of those that are around him. And if you notice in the first part of this chapter, the word understand is mentioned several times. And then down in verse 12, it says that uh, then they understood. So there's a little faith, as uh, he says in verse 8, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Don't you understand yet? So Jesus is constantly asking probing questions to determine the receptivity, the spiritual receptivity of your heart. In Romans chapter 3, verse 11, it says, There is none righteous, no, not one, and there is none that seeks after God. So that says to me, nobody in and of themselves are going to seek God. But then you read in John chapter 6, uh, 44, where Jesus says, no one comes into the Father unless the Father draws him. So I imagine Jesus was always walking and moving about and seeing about who is God the Father drawing into a relationship. Because once you are drawn into that relationship, not only is God inviting you into that relationship, but you are also becoming awakened through the Spirit of God into who God is. And then that becomes... uh, the basis for everything else that flows out. Remember, who you say Jesus is influences your life. So, Jesus is always asking probing questions to determine spiritual receptivity. Here was an insight that I had in the parable of the sower. The seed is being cast out. We used to say, uh, and I used to think, that, the, uh, that I would listen to see if anybody said anything spiritual. And if they did say something spiritual, then I, I began to think, especially as a chaplain, well, this person might be receptive to God, and God might be at work in their lives. But what I have since found out is that according to the parable of the sower, we do not know the receptivity of a person until the seed has sown. So instead of waiting, which is another excuse of saying, I don't want to share with somebody— Instead of waiting for something to happen, now I will throw uh, little, little seeds out and see if anybody will take it. 
And that helps me to determine where does this conversation go from there. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing with his questions. Some of you might say this is a great way to talk about Jesus. Maybe when you're with your friends or when you're out on the golf course or at work, uh, sitting in the coffee room, just bring up the conversation. Hey, uh, I was reading in my Bible, uh, who do you say Jesus is? What do you think about Jesus? And you will be interested in uh, hearing what they have to say, and then you can kind of give a guidance uh, where to go from there. I was in Sam's a while back, and a gentleman had this um, a pentagram necklace on, and I, and I said, wow, um, I understand, you know, you, you seem to be a religious person or a spiritual person. He goes, yeah. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about that. And uh, he was saying that he was very learned and, and educated and did a lot of reading. And I said, well, out of all of your reading, what did you think about the Bible? And he goes, well, I never got to the Bible. You know, I was satisfied with what uh, I had found. And I said, well, that's kind of interesting being in, in intellectual that you chose uh, to make a decision before you've read one of the most significant uh, works that talks about God. And he's like, well, I just didn't feel like it. Now, you might be saying, all right, how receptive was this person? You tell me. Not very receptive. So I could have talked to him. To, I was blue in the face. And it probably would have not gone anywhere. But I got a sense of where he was coming from. And I knew I could step back knowing that there may be another opportunity or that God has other people that could speak into his life. So, as we look here at Matthew, I want us to focus down here in, beginning in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, there is a parallel to this in Luke. Uh, I believe it's like Luke 9-11 or so, maybe it's a little bit later. But uh, there it says Jesus was alone praying. And then he must have come out of his prayer time and, and then had this uh, situation here, uh, this kind of on-site with insight teaching experience. But here it says, and when he came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is, a, this is a very interesting place. And for those of you that have gone to Israel, um, it's at the, uh, the, the uppermost northern part of the country. And it is an area that was constantly being plagued with paganism and just trouble. And uh, all kinds of pagan religions, there were human sacrifices there at a place called Banias, which was later on uh, entitled Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. And, and uh, so it's, it's not exactly a place that you would envision as an ideal retreat spot. Uh, you can walk to this place, and it's the head of the Jordan River, and they had a lot of beliefs, pagan beliefs, on what would come out of that head and what was down there. And uh, they had human sacrifices there. So a lot of things happened there. And Jesus took his disciples to this location to have this discussion. So here's the question, his request. He asked his disciples, this was not geared just towards Peter. He sat down with his disciples and said to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, as I'm looking and trying to understand the context of this chapter and what's going on, I'm asking the question, why would Jesus ask them this question? Since when does he care what other people think about him? If you remember earlier on in the book, uh, some of the disciples, you know, when Jesus was saying, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, some of the disciples says, hey, you know, you're really, you're really creating some problems here, and it's not helping your cause. And, and Jesus was like, so be it. 
You know, and he even uh, was to the point to where they were calling him Beelzebub. Uh, so since when does Jesus become concerned about what other people think? Once again, it's a probing question. It was not so much for him. It was a setting up for an opportunity for him to ask them yet another question. But here we see um, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then in verse 14, uh, they begin sharing. And they said, so it's not just Peter. You know, you can kind of hear like a small group setting and different disciples were saying different things. Some said uh, John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, you know, was the forerunner. He was proclaiming the way. Uh, then you've got uh, uh, others, and then you have Elijah. You know, to this day, there's still a chair uh, at the table there for Passover and waiting for, for Isaiah to come and to announce uh, as a forerunner for the Messiah. Then you've got Jeremiah, who, is, according to Maccabees, is to come back, and he's supposed to bring the ark and bring that and set that up in the restored temple. So they're basically sharing people that have a positive view of who Jesus is. But all feedback is not created equal. If you notice, it says others. They, they left those out. And when you think about who Jesus is, Jesus says, I am the way. He is the dividing line from every other denomination and religion and belief and practice. He is the dividing line. And some may say he's a lightning rod. What do other religions say about Jesus? According to the Muslims, he's a prophet. To the Hindu, they have a, a lot of different beliefs and, and aren't really centered on one particular one. But uh, for Jesus, they consider him a holy man. Uh, for Buddhists, it's much the same way. You have a lot of different Buddhists, and it's hard to pin down one particular belief. But for most of them, they see Jesus as an enlightened guru. And then secular, secularists see Jesus as a good moral teacher. So where would you fall in the list? If somebody were to describe what you believe, if you had been in that list, I had friends that went to church when I was in high school. Nobody, I even dropped a few of them off for Sunday night church. Nobody invited me to church. None of my friends ever invited me to church. So if you would have asked me what, my, what I thought about my friend's faith, I would have said it's a task. It's not real. How would you answer that? Would some, how would somebody, how would the people where you work describe your belief? There was a Barna study or survey, and it says that 56% of the people here in America do not have confidence in the divinity of Jesus. But what does Peter say? But you, in verse 15, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Once again, this was asking the disciples, but Peter, being the bold person, answered for them. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
This is not the first time Peter had said this. He said it in the boat when Jesus had calmed the sea. And he said, surely this is the Son of God. Andrew in John chapter 1 had mentioned uh, that Jesus was the Messiah. John the Baptist was the forerunner. So this is not anything new. So why was this so significant at this point? It is because, and it goes back to the verse 4, then he left them and went away. Jesus is preparing them, his disciples, for what is to come. And he's wanting them to understand what others are saying about him. And then he's wanting them to understand who he is in preparation for what is to come. And he says here in verse 17, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because, my flood, my, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. The word there, revealed. It was revealed. Remember I said earlier, I could talk to him blue in the face and trying to share with people. And unless the Holy Spirit is alive and active in that other person's life to quicken them to the things of God, then it's just going to be noise. It'll be like the parents on peanuts. You know, wah, 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 wah. This is why prayer is so important, that we are in alignment with God, that we are in, uh, um, uh, in harmony with what God is doing. And we're going to see here in a few minutes what that means. But revealed, revealed. In Matthew 13, 11, the disciples had been with Jesus, and then now Jesus starts, pre- uh, starts teaching in these stories called parables. And then they asked him in, in Matthew 13, 10, why do you speak to them in parables? And then they said, well, what does that mean? And so Jesus is saying, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you for you to know, but it has not been given to them. It was not given to them. And then over in Matthew 13, 35, Jesus says, so, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, I will open my mouth in parables and declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Do you realize that Jesus is the great revealer? And that he is now revealing things that people had never heard before, though it was captured in Scripture. He is now unveiling it for people. If you turn over in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, it says this is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is revealing things. He is a revealer. And this helps, and this demonstration shows in fulfillment of prophecy in, um, in Psalm 78 too. Jesus says here to, to, to Simon, in the answer to this most important question, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now, what follows here are several promises to those that, that uh, make this profession. And I understand there's a lot of controversy and there's a lot of discussion on the meanings of the of these questions or these uh, statements. So I'm going to try to kind of summarize it for you uh, because I understand that uh, we, we typically are out of here before 3 o'clock. So, so the first promise uh, that Jesus reveals here because of Simon's confession, I mean, he says, you are blessed. You are happy. And so as a believer who makes this confession today, these promises, I believe, are still 
uh, promises for us to hold on to. So Jesus promises to those who confess Christ, number one, Jesus promises to build his church through his faithful followers. Jesus said here in, in uh, Matthew 16, 17, or 16, 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter. Now the word there is a little rock. That's what Peter means, a little rock. And on this big rock, I will build my church. So Peter is saying, hey, you are now a part of something that is much bigger than you. You are one piece of a big thing, a big thing that God is doing. The church is Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. And each believer in the church, in Christ's church, according to 1 Peter uh, 2, 5, is a living stone. And so Jesus is saying here to Peter and to the disciples uh, that you are one of what will become many of this entity called the church. Now here it's a non-technical. It is ecclesia, but it is not the fully developed church as we understand it now. So it's more of a general, uh, universal type church that is Christ's church. And so over in uh, Matthew 13, once again, in one of the parables, uh, we have the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the vegetables and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. What is something in small and insignificant grows to something big. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, uh, this is the start of something big. And even in the parable of the sower, uh, or parable of the mustard seed, the birds is a reference, according to Ezekiel, of the Gentiles, of us. So not only is this move at starting small, he is now explaining to his disciples that we're starting small, persevere, it's going to become big. And Peter, you are one of the little pebbles of this big church that is to be. So it was not what they expected. But the promise to him and the promise to us is that when we make this profession of Christ, that we become a part of this um, church, of his church. And so that's a promise to him, to, to those of us that follow him. The second promise is Jesus promises to deliver his followers from eternal death. Notice I didn't say death. I said eternal death. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, I, I was a healthcare chaplain for many years. And I remember at a local hospital, one of the doctors coming to me and saying, Brent, um, I don't understand why Christians have such a hard time with death. Can you explain this to me? Don't y'all have some sort of belief about life after this life? And he's like, I just don't understand why Christians are so reluctant to embrace uh, life after this life. How about you? Are you living as though this is the end all to everything? Or do you realize that I was created and I am created for eternity and that I will live for eternity in the presence of God? Jesus promises to deliver his followers from eternal death. In Matthew 16, 18, he says, um, the forces of Hades will not overpower it. Some of your Bible's uh, translations may say gate. Gates are to keep people in. 
uh, for protection. It's not a weapon of uh, offensiveness. It's to protect. And he's saying that death is not going to keep you in. It's going to, it's, it's, I've conquered it. We have no need to fear death anymore. In John chapter 11, in verse uh, 25, uh, maybe a familiar passage to you about uh, Lazarus and his uh, sisters. Martha said, I know that uh, he will rise again. And she was believing that if Jesus had been there, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus came there intentionally at this point to teach her a lesson said to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. No, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What another wonderful question. Is this the end of life? I mean, is this the, the whole purpose where we created to be born and to die and that's it? Or will we have eternity? And Jesus is saying, I have erased uh, death. I have conquered it. And so much so that in John 14, 9, he can say, 14, 19, he says, because I live, you will live. So Jesus promises to deliver his followers from eternal death. The third point here and promise is Jesus promises to guide his people to fulfill his will and purposes. In verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Now, we could talk a lot about this, what it means to bind and loose, and I've been with people that, you know, are binding things and loosening things, and, and, uh, but the context of this is not just kind of uh, God saying, hey, whatever you want, I'm going to do it. I'm your genie. I'm your, I'm your vending machine, whatever you want. No, that's not the point here. The point here is the verse, the word keys. Keys, I'm giving you authority. Authority to do what? I'm giving you authority to do what I have already uh, willed to be done. And so here it is Jesus promises to guide his people to fulfill his will and purposes. We see that Peter was given this authority and took advantage of it at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to the Jews. Uh, he also did it to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, verse 14 and following, and then to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. The other apostles shared in this authority according to Matthew 18, 18. And then now at the end of Matthew, this authority is known as the Great Commission. And there at the end of Matthew we see that this authority, these keys, have been extended to all of us now. Where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Once again, we are now a part of all these other pebbles that have gone on from the beginning here with Peter. But what Jesus is saying is that we are not uh, here to bind and lose and to do whatever we want to do, that we are to do what God has already willed. We are to fulfill his will and purposes, not ours. And Jesus even modeled the prayer to emphasize this over in Matthew 6, verse 7 where he said, when you pray, uh, he said, um, um, 
says this, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your what be done. It's not may my will be done and you stamp to give it the approval. So these promises are for those that have confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This morning, as we get ready to close here, the question everyone must answer is who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, says we are to enter through the gate, through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Everyone here has to answer this question. And when I read that about the gate, it says few are those that find it. Why are they not finding it? They're not looking for it. I was surprised by another uh, research done by Lifeway. It says Americans who identify as Christians are most likely to say they find Jesus as Savior. 53% of those who identify as Christians say that Jesus is their Savior. Do you see the disconnect there? And I would imagine if you were to examine their lives, how does their life show their relationship or lack of with Christ? We're not here, and I'm not here to, to get you to jump through hoops and to do this, that, and the other. It should be out of an encounter with the Holy Spirit and who God is and who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is the answer. Jesus left us clear teaching about his identity. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world, and anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says in John 10, 9, I am the gate. If anyone enters me, he or she will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if you die, will live. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One final verse, Jesus is asking you this question. He's asking you this question. How does your life show you the answer? And in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. It is not an invitation to accept some philosophical beliefs. It is not an invitation to agree to a way of life. It is an acknowledgement that I have had this encounter with the risen living Lord, and I have been invited into this relationship with him. And that will influence the way you live. So your life is not a checkbox. It's doing things to maintain that relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all about a relationship, not rules. So this morning, how does your life show you know the answer? As a new creation, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, there should be a difference. 
There should be a difference. That is how Jesus influences our life, through a transformation that is obvious to everybody, that sustains us to persevere until we're reunited with him in heaven. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for who you are and that you reveal yourself to us so that we can see our all in you. God, I ask that you will give us and grant us the strength to live these promises given to all those who confess Christ as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, so that we can glorify you. And in this world, you have given us a beginning that will be perfected in heaven. Unite us with yourself to keep our faith real, personal, and practical, so that nothing may ever draw us away from you. God, hear our prayers, and to you be the glory. I want to give an opportunity for those of you that came here that could not say Jesus is the Christ and want to lead you in this prayer. And if this is something that you can pray and would be willing to pray because God has revealed himself to you this morning, please join me in this prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for making me and for loving me even when I've ignored you and have gone my own way. I believe you died for my sins and now ask you in faith to come into my life to be the righteousness of God. I believe right now that all my sins are forgiven through Christ's blood, and I commit to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Help me to grow in my relationship with you, to understand the grace and the knowledge and resources that are mine in Christ. So I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you, if you prayed that prayer, you just answered one of the most important questions that you will ever face. And because he is your I am, you now can say I can for whatever is facing you today. Talk to the staff. Let us become a part of your journey. And for that, we give praise and glory to God. Amen.